0: everybody what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the lights out podcast i'm your host josh as always i've got my brother and producer joel in the studio with me and today due to requests from you guys i've decided to cover probably one of the most terrifying events in all of history and especially in european history and that is the 2011 norway attacks which were perpetrated by Anders Brevik. This is a absolutely just insane story. Extremely sad, extremely just horrific. And it's one of those events that, you know, it happened in 2011 and I'm just trying to think back to where I was when, when this all went down. And I gotta say, like, sadly, I don't really remember this happening because unfortunately here in the US, a lot of our media is super censored and you know, our mainstream media doesn't usually want to tell us about things happening around the world, especially things like this. And I just feel like this completely went over my head. Like, I think I may have heard briefly about it, but I never really understood exactly what had happened or who actually perpetrated these attacks, what this was all about. And so I figured, you know, I want to dive into this and take a look into it a lot deeper and try to really understand what happened in Norway in 2011 because I mean, it just, I mean, just like it rocked that entire part of the world. I mean, it completely changed the way I looked at so many things after, you know, I really dug into this one. And recently there was a Netflix, basically a movie that was released called July 22nd. That is essentially a reenactment of the events that took place in Norway in 2011. And after watching it, I was just completely taken aback at how terrifying and just an absolute nightmare this was for all of the poor individuals that were victims of this terrorist attack is really what it was. Same here. When I saw the movie, it, it just blew my mind on how disturbing it was. And I, I they did a good job at like showing what really happened, like so much detail and super sad. What happened to those people? It is. It, it really gives you an, an idea, just a glimpse at what people went through and That's what we're gonna be diving into today. So this is a really, really dark one. It's really tragic what happened, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it that I'll definitely be sharing. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to thank our sponsors today. We've got American Giant, Bright Cellars, and Lamps Plus, which I thought it was funny so many of you guys were like, (laughs) what the, what's, it's a perfect sponsor. lamps company right so thanks to those guys for supporting the show and also if you guys want some lights out merch definitely go and get it before we sell out milehiremerch.com check it out lastly i wanted to just address real quick why you know we were we took a week off last week i know a lot of you were like hey where's my lights out episode you know didn't didn't see it uploaded and and i guess i never really even blasted out to everybody what had happened but basically we were having some issues with the studio and there's also some personal things just going on uh, with family and things like that, that we were dealing with. And so Joel and I were like, you know, we've been battling so many audio issues and I know we were saying like there might be paranormal activity in the studio with some of the weird things we were encountering. And there's still definitely, I think there is, but I don't think the audio issues that we were, you know, people were reporting and and things like that. And the video issues were were related to the paranormal uh, stuff. But, we just needed some time to really like deconstruct our studio and completely rebuild it and as you can probably tell the sound is a, a little bit different i think it sounds just maybe a hopefully a tad more clear a tad more natural than it did before yeah it definitely sounds more crystal to me so i'm glad we took the time to finally address these issues because hopefully it pays off right yeah i really hope so because damn i i'm just i've been uh i mean i've built this whole studio Completely from scratch. I had no experience in this. I've been just learning along the way You know, I've been doing this for a couple years now, but I'm still learning this whole world of podcasting and audio So it just takes time sometimes and you know, we're like, let's just take a week Let's let's get our shit figured out so that we can go forward into the future and we'll have our new sign here soon I'm very excited about that Uh, We you know, we'll still probably rock the tapestry somewhere, but we'll have a really cool neon sign that we had made So I'm very excited about that but other than that, I hope you guys are doing good. I hope the the holidays are good. Uh, you know, this year's just been crazy. So, you know, stay safe and just you know, let's keep the lights out, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. But with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the 2011 Norway attacks, and we begin by talking about the perpetrator Anders Breivik, and as we always do, we dig into the background of these honestly in my opinion evil individuals who you know and try to understand how do we get to this point how does somebody get to the point where they go and massacre large numbers of people it's something that is just so beyond i think our comprehension you know how does a human being who starts out as a child how do they end up getting to a point where they don't care they desensitize themselves they isolate themselves to a point where they're like you know what I'm gonna go out and mass murder a bunch of people, a bunch of innocent people. Nevertheless, so I just always find it interesting to kind of go back into their history, look at their childhood, and try to try to see if we can make sense of this. I mean, that's that's really why I cover these events, is because a a lot of these events just get glazed over in the mainstream media, and then we just forget, they like want us to forget about it until the next one happens. And also, you know, the people that actually perish in these events. I think it's important to continue talking about them and what they went through and so we're all reminded of you know their memory and you know their legacy and try to hopefully prevent something like this from happening again I mean is always the ultimate goal but sometimes the best thing you can do is just spread awareness and just keep keep those victims in in your thoughts and prayers because some of the things that people go through in life I can't even begin to comprehend how you you know especially if you survive an event like the norway attacks how you even go on after it and just the trauma that you experience and you know seeing people around you that are your friends and people that are close to you that that are killed i mean it's just this this to me is the most terrifying just thing that can happen to you as a human being i feel like to be just gunned down or murdered in cold blood by just some random person. And especially in a mass event like this, I you know, I've had dreams even where I've been in a mass shooting before. And I just remember waking up from those dreams and I'm like, if if that's anything like what real life was like for people who go through these events, then I am fucking lucky. I'm super lucky. I've never had to go through something like that. And I've just got so much respect for all the people that have family members that have been lost in events and people who have survived. I mean, it's just can't even imagine how you go on with life. So with all that in mind, let's begin our story with Anders Brevik. Forgive me for my pronunciation of a lot of these Norwegian names and places. I'm probably going to butcher it, so I apologize to those who are in in Norway and, 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 you know, that part of the world. I'm definitely going (laughs) to do my best to try and and pronounce them correctly, but here we go. So Anders Breivik was born on February 13th, 1979, in Oslo, Norway. His mother was a nurse named Venka Bering, and his father was a civil economist named Jens David Breivik. And Jens worked in London and later Paris as a diplomat at the Norwegian embassy. Anders only lived in London for one year after he was born, before his parents got divorced. And after a bitter custody battle, his mother Venka won full custody and took him back to Norway. He spent most of his childhood living in a small apartment with his mother and half-sister in the west end of Oslo. Anders was a troubled kid. By the time he was four years old, two reports had been filed by psychologists from the National Center for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the reports described his poor mental health and poor living conditions, recommending he be removed from his mother's home. Multiple psychologists contributed to these reports, and one expressed concern that Anders didn't understand emotion. He would smile in response to an outside cue, not because he was happy or excited, The young boy's broad smile and otherwise vacant expression were disturbing, even to the psychologist. That to me is frightening when somebody can't, you know, understand emotion. Well, to me, it's just not being genuine, you know, like smile if you're happy, if you're not, then stay neutral type of thing, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think there's definitely like some psychology there with that and, you know, I'm not even going to begin to try to understand or explain that, but, you know, some people's brains just don't work the same as everybody else's. And, you know, the brain's an extremely complex organ. I mean, there's so much about it we don't understand. And there's so much that we don't know why certain things happen. Right. So, you know, a lot of times I think with individuals like this, there's just, there's things that they're born with that affect, you know, affect the way they are, and affect the way they perceive the world. So it seems like Anders was one of those individuals. But another psychologist noted that Anders' mother was abusive, both mentally and physically. Venka had told Anders she wished he were dead in front of a psychologist. She was unpredictable one minute she was furious, and the next minute she was kind and sweet. And sometimes Anders was aggressive toward his mother, and other times he would cling to her and refuse to let go. The psychologist explained that Venka, quote, projects her primitive, aggressive, and sexual fantasies onto him. Venka likely had borderline personality disorder and suffered from depression, possibly due to the trauma she experienced in her own abusive childhood. When Venka was eight years old, her father died and left her to care for her disabled mother and paralyzed grandmother, who developed psychosis and became delusional. When she was 17 years old, she fled home, and soon after, she was pregnant with her daughter, Anders' half-sister. Later on, she met Jens and became pregnant with her second child, Anders. While he was still in the womb, his mother hated him. She called him a fundamentally nasty and evil child who was determined to destroy her. When he kicked, Venka wasn't delighted, as most expecting mothers are. She believed the fetus was kicking her on purpose. And because of this, she wanted to have an abortion. But by the time she got back to Norway from the UK, it was too late. She was over three months pregnant and was now forced to give birth to a baby she believed was evil. After Anders was born, Venka barely breastfed him. When her infant son latched onto her breast, she felt like he was sucking the life out of her. Anders was removed from his mother's home temporarily when he was two years old, after reports from neighbors that Venka left her children alone for long periods of time. The neighbors also reported to the authorities there was loud screaming and fights. Anders ended up living with a young couple for a short time and according to this couple, he asked to see the man's penis because he had only ever seen girl's parts. And this couple assumed that he had been molested. In school, Anders was smart and strong, but he had trouble bonding with his peers. He rarely showed emotions like happiness or sadness but he experienced anxiety when things were out of sorts, like his toys weren't in the right order or if something was dirty. Both of Anders' parents eventually remarried. His father, Jens, lived with his second wife in France. Anders visited his father and his stepmother often, and they divorced when he was 12 years old. When he was 15 years old, he decided to be confirmed into the Lutheran Church of Norway, but soon his rebellious side took over. He became a graffiti artist in Oslo's hip hop community and started being watched closely by the local police. He actually got caught multiple times and fined for his graffiti. After a fight with his best friend, he left the hip hop community and became a loner. Anders was always bigger and stronger than his peers. And as a teenager, he spent a lot of his time weightlifting, even taking steroids to make himself even bigger. As he became more isolated, Anders started criticizing his parents for their political beliefs, especially because they supported the Norwegian Labor Party. The Norwegian Labor Party follows social democracy and is considered center-left politically, and it had attracted a huge youth following through the Workers' Youth League, Norway's largest political youth organization that includes a network for young women to be more involved in the party. And Anders didn't want anything to do with the Labor Party's progressive ideas or the Workers Youth League. He even criticized his own mother for being a moderate feminist. When Anders was 16 years old, he became estranged from his father. Venka claimed that Jens cut off contact with her son after Anders was fined by the police for his graffiti art, but he denied this, saying it was Anders who cut off contact with him. And the psychologist who filed the reports on behalf of Anders when he was a young boy had placed a care order for him which meant that Norway State Child Welfare Services should have intervened and placed him in the foster care system. But he was only removed from his mother's home briefly. And when his father learned about all this, he tried to get custody back. Jens and Venka both hired lawyers to try to get custody of Anders. Child Welfare Services decided not to take the case to court for lack of evidence, and they dropped the whole thing. Had Anders been able to stay in a loving foster home with no mental or physical abuse, his life would very likely have played out much differently, at least according to one of the psychologists who met Anders when he was a very young boy. As a young man, the Norwegian Defense Secretary Department deemed Anders unfit for service in the military. So he took up a job as a customer service rep and was polite to his coworkers and customers. But a friend of his claimed he was less polite to a few ethnic groups, including Arabs and South Asians. At some point around this time, he got plastic surgery on his face to change his forehead, nose, and chin. He also traveled to Eastern Europe once during this time when he went to Belarus in his early 20s to meet a woman he met online. And she came to visit him too, but the relationship didn't work out. When Anders was only 23 years old, he started planning terrorist attacks that wouldn't take place for nine years. Exactly when Anders started these plans is up for debate, but he claims he started planning and saving in 2002. Around this time, he founded a computer programming business to raise the money he needed for the attacks and kept his customer service job while getting the company off the ground. Soon, he made his first million kroner, which is about 114000 US dollars. He then opened offshore bank accounts and hired a few employees, And the company eventually went bankrupt, but Anders was able to walk away with about 2 million kroner, which he used to plan the attacks. After leaving the company, he moved back into his mother's home and kept saving and planning. And for the next few years, Anders was isolated and withdrawn. During this time, he was active on internet forums and message boards, denouncing immigration and Islam. Anders applied for every credit card he could, And by 2008, he had nine credit cards, giving him access to more funds to plan the terrorist attacks. In 2009, he founded a farming company set up as a sole proprietorship. And the site of this farm was a rural area outside of Oslo in Hedmark County. And through this farm he bought, he was able to purchase huge amounts of fertilizer and chemicals. And in August and September of 2010, he traveled to Prague to try and buy weapons. Prague has a relatively low crime rate more so than other large cities before he went to Prague Anders went and bought fake police badges online and he brought them with him to Prague because he was going to go buy weapons and he wanted to you know basically give himself a cover story and he also thought you know it'd keep him safe and this police badge looks somewhat legit to me i mean it just doesn't have like that flashy seal That I see on most like police officers badges but I mean to the average person who doesn't know much about it like it kind of looks a little convincing to me like what about you it looks fake to me honestly like it looks I don't know it looks very amateur I guess it I don't know what badges look like over in Europe so maybe this is pretty standard for police badges over there but compared to like a U.S. police badge I feel like it almost looks like his picture was kind of placed on this badge. Like if you're looking at this, it's just a headshot of him and it says police underneath it. But to me, it almost looks, I don't know. I I'm, I'm just kind of suspicious of every everything, but <laughs> I don't know. I guess it could look legit. So in addition to getting these police badges, he also printed some documents about a mineral extraction business. Cause he was worried that obviously if you're gonna go buy weapons and all these fertilizer and all this materials and stuff, you gotta have some sort of cover story. Otherwise you're gonna get, you know, they're gonna bust you real quick if you're not careful and you're not, you know, creating a really good cover story. So when he went to Prague, Anders removed the backseat of his car, assuming it would be filled with weapons when he drove home. His plan was to go and buy an AK-47, a Glock pistol and hand grenades. He even thought he might find a rocket propelled grenade used to launch explosives. But when he went to Prague, no weapons for Anders. The trip was a bust. And after his disappointing attempt to buy weapons illegally, he returned to Norway and started stockpiling an arsenal through legal channels. I'm not super familiar with the gun laws in Norway, but I do know that it is definitely much more difficult to get your hands on weapons there than it is here in the US obviously. So in order to get weapons in Norway, Anders ended up getting a membership and, you know, regularly attended a pistol club and paid for a hunting license, which allowed him to buy a semi-automatic 9mm Glock 34 pistol, a semi-automatic Ruger Mini 14 rifle. These weren't the only guns he had. In addition to the ones he got at the pistol club, Anders had a Benelli shotgun, a bolt-action rifle, as well as four 30-round magazines for the pistol and 10 30 round magazines for the rifle, along with six more magazines for the pistol. In his free time, Anders loved to play video games, and he would play them pretty much all day, all night, believing games like World of Warcraft and Call of Duty would help him improve his aim. I don't know about that. Yeah, I was going to say I play a lot of Call of Duty and when I'm shooting a real gun, my aim is not good whatsoever. So (laughs) no, there's no translation. there. Yeah, Uh, there's no translation from the video games to real guns. I mean, that's if anything, all it's doing is like getting you, I guess, desensitized a bit to violence and to hearing the sounds because I can see that. And like Call of Duty, you still have a lot of like real sounds in there and stuff. Definitely. But obviously it's not, you know. Using your thumbs on a controller is not the same yeah, as like no. shooting a gun or, you know, a rifle or anything like that. And World of Warcraft, I don't play that too, and don't see how that helps you at all either. But when he wasn't playing video games, Anders spent months and months practicing at the pistol club so he could buy that Glock pistol he wanted. And on June 23rd, 2011, he paid off his credit cards and moved to his farm about 140 kilometers or 87 miles from Oslo. The neighbors around the farm started taking notice of Anders though, because he was out of place in the country. He dressed in expensive clothes, kept his windows covered, and didn't show any interest in actually running a farm, because all he was doing was stockpiling chemicals. He bought a primer to ignite the detonator of the explosives from an online seller in Poland, which was 300 grams of sodium nitrate. The Norwegian Customs service flagged the purchase and gave Anders information to the police security service where he was on the watch list for a little while. But the police found nothing suspicious and never acted on it. So Anders was free to continue his planning uninterrupted. He stored the chemicals and fertilizers he needed to make explosives in the barn on the farm's property. One of the bombs he made was a massive 950 kilograms or 2,000 pound bomb. That is crazy. His little farm continued to provide a convincing cover for him. It was supposedly cultivating vegetables and other crops. And there was no law in Norway to regulate how much fertilizer an agricultural business like this could purchase. Anders even kept up appearances online, listing two additional employees on the farm's Facebook page. The great lengths that he went to create this cover story is just truly wild. All the while he's trying to come off as just a farmer, he's literally building a 2,000 pound bomb. That's can't, can't make that shit up, that's crazy. On July 22nd, 2011, Anders Brevik loaded a bomb into a white Volkswagen crafter. He put on a policeman's uniform and with him he brought a helmet and face shield and packed his guns and ammunition in a bag. He then drove the Volkswagen to an office park in Oslo at 3.13 p.m. and stopped about 200 meters from the H block of buildings. His plan was to park the vehicle amidst several government buildings in and around H block in the office park. And earlier he had stashed a getaway vehicle nearby, a silver Fiat Doblo, so he could have a quick escape. The H block included the office of the prime minister and Royal ministry of justice and public security. Other surrounding buildings included the ministry of petroleum and energy, ministry of finance, Ministry of Education and Research in the Supreme Court of Norway. Once there, he put the hazard lights on and sat still for almost two minutes. He then drove the two hundred meters to the front entrance of the building and parked there. By this time, it was three sixteen p m Andersen waited sixteen seconds before opening the door of the Volkswagen and After sixteen more seconds went by, he got out and stood beside the vehicle for seven seconds. He was wearing the police helmet and face shield and was also holding a gun in plain view. He then walked quickly from the Volkswagen toward where he had stashed the getaway car. A witness saw Anders walking away and had a bad feeling about him. And before he could drive away, this witness noted the license plate number of the Silver Fiat Dablo. At 3.25 PM, the bomb that had been lit inside the Volkswagen exploded. As you can imagine, the reports of this explosion Reached the police within minutes, and the first police arrived within three minutes of the blast. People 4.3 miles or seven kilometers away heard the explosion. The H block and the R4 buildings across the street were on fire. All the windows in the surrounding buildings had been blown out, even those on the other side of the office park. The Department of Oil and Energy burned as white smoke poured from the building. Emergency vehicles arrived and started helping those who were injured in the blast. At least one bus was used to transport the walking wounded. And some of the pictures from the blast are just horrifying. I mean, to just be in the middle of your work day. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're completely rocked by this explosion. And you have no idea what just happened. You have no idea what's going on or who did this. And everything just turns to chaos and horror in a split second. I think it's something that's just can't even wrap your head around. I can't even imagine what that would be like. The media reported that the prime minister was unharmed while the police scrambled to clear the area, urging people to evacuate central Oslo and search for any more explosive devices because they didn't know what was going on. I mean, this is kind of unheard of period, anywhere. And yet now all the authorities are scrambling to try to see if there's anything else, you know, another attack, another bomb, somewhere else within these buildings. At 3.34 p.m., the witness who had seen a suspicious man getting into a Fiat Diablo called the police to report what he had seen. He gave them the license plate number and Anders' description, including his police uniform and gear, as well as the gun he was carrying. Whoever answered the phone at the police station wrote down the license number and the description on a yellow notepad and gave it to a police officer. It took 20 minutes for the witness to get a call back and two hours before any police on the ground were notified through the radio. Oslo's public transportation continued to run except for a railway line that was temporarily stopped after reports of something suspicious near the tracks. The offices of a local TV station were evacuated after a similar report, but no explosives were found at either location. As a result of the blast, six people had been killed instantly and two more died shortly after and over 209 people were injured from the explosion. 12 of those people being severely injured. Luckily, since it was a Friday afternoon in the summer, fewer people were in the office park than usual. The casualties of this bombing could have been much worse had it been a Monday or any other day of the week. After this attack, Anders still had 1,000 to 1,500 kilograms or 2,200 to 3,300 pounds of material that he may have been saving for a second bombing. Still dressed in the police uniform Anders got on a ferry using the name Martin Nilsson and the ferry was going to the island of Utoya and the Utoya island very small definitely not a big island at all I mean you can walk around it and I don't even know, an hour or so. It's really not that big. But Utoya Island hosted an annual summer camp organized by the Workers' Youth League of the Labor Party, the very same political party Anders had criticized his parents for supporting when he was a teenager. About 600 or 700 teens were attending the camp that year. Many of the kids at the camp were the children of government officials, political figures, and diplomats, or somehow related to them. Basically, the way that he got to the island was by fooling the people to bring the ferry over to him because he was dressed as a police officer. So he appears to be, you know, just a trusty cop that, you know, is trying to go to the island to secure it, keep everybody safe from the attack that had just happened. Once he got off of the ferry, he then went up to the camp leader, Monica Bose and said that he was checking on the camp after the bombing and also. But Monica wasn't buying it. Something just seemed off about Anders. He didn't seem like a police officer, so she contacted the security officer on the island, Trond Bertston, an unarmed off-duty police officer, and at 5.22 p.m., the first shots were heard. When Trond arrived to meet Monica, Anders immediately shot them both point blank taking out the people he believed were in charge of the camp right away and plus they're you know it's their security it's their leader of the camp after those first shots though people on the island started calling the police and they were notified almost immediately and by 5 30 p.m a tactical unit called delta was on the way but it would be an hour and a half before they actually made it to the island because the first obstacle was transportation. The helicopter crew was on leave and the only helicopter the police had access to wasn't able to transport multiple people onto the island. The second obstacle came when police arrived at the island 30 minutes after they were notified of the shooting, but there was no boat available to take them across and the ferry that Anders had taken to the island was returning to the mainland when the shooting started. So it was rerouted to the north. So crazy enough, the police officers who were trying to get to the island were literally stranded on the shore, only able to observe and report. How fucking crazy is that? Because the island is not that far away. It's really not that far of a boat ride if there's this little ferry. So they're able to hear literally what's happening on the island. Because meanwhile, back on the island, The camp leaders had gathered the teens together to tell them about the bombing in Oslo. And it's important to note that the 700 or 600 youth that were at this camp were all mostly under 20. I mean, I think the youngest was like 14. So these are literally just a bunch of teenagers that are, you know, there on this, you know, big getaway retreat, you know, for the group when anders shows up once anders had started you know walking around the camp the teens were dispersing you know after their camp leaders had just told them what had happened and everybody's kind of grouped up in little groups talking about how upsetting it was that you know there's this bombing in oslo and trying to just make sense of what had happened meanwhile there's a killer on the loose after anders killed monica and trond he started walking toward this group of teens. Before he did though, he pulled a gun from his bag and he started shooting. Others nearby heard the gunshots and they thought someone was joking around and just playing with an air gun or fireworks. And they were still upset about the bombing and were mad that someone would be joking around. But then they heard the screaming. And 20 to 30 people were running at full speed up the hill as fast as they could, screaming, run! and get away as they ran all the while andrews has got his rifle he's got his handgun he's walking slowly behind them still dressed like a police officer and a girl who had just left the showers walked toward him to see what was going on and as she approached he just kept calmly walking towards her before he shot her three times in the chest those nearby watched in horror as she fell to the ground And Anders proceeded to shoot her two more times. One teen saw people lying on the ground and he thought they were crouching down to hide because their eyes were open. But when he got closer, he saw the blood and realized they were all dead. Anders continued to walk slowly around the island like he had all the time in the world. And obviously there's gunshots, there's screaming, so word is quickly spreading throughout the camp that we need to hide, we need to get away. And obviously you're on an island so you can't just get away, you know, you're stuck on this island. So they were just trying to find anywhere to hide that they could. So to kind of give you a better idea of, of what this island was like and what these poor people were dealing with, this island for one is kind of like a heart-shaped island which is kind of interesting. And the majority of the camp buildings are kind of in little clearings on the island, but the rest of it is just completely forested and then there's kind of rocky shores around it. So the only real places to hide are among the rocks, some of the cliff faces, and the forest, I mean, you're just kind of like trying to hide behind trees and there's really not, you know, a ton of really good hiding places. But as teens were trying to find places to hide, they were also talking to each other through texting, alerting their friends about where Anders was at the moment. And as Anders walked around shooting, he would yell, today is the day you die, Marxists. Five campers were hidden inside a freezer in the kitchen when Anders came in. He walked around the kitchen and past the freezer, but never looked inside. Campers hid in their beds and held their breath when they heard Anders come near. And parents obviously were starting to call in to check on their kids because they heard what was going on there. And unfortunately, when Anders heard the cell phones ring, he knew where the campers were hiding. After he circled the island once, some teens stayed on the ground pretending to be dead. But Anders had plenty of time to inspect the bodies. If he found anyone still alive, he shot them, sometimes even a second time. After half an hour had gone by, some campers thought the shooter was gone and came out of their hiding spots. And when they did, Anders was there waiting for them. At one point, Anders encountered the 11-year-old son of Trond Bertsey, the security officer he killed when he first arrived, and decided to spare his life. The day was particularly cold, 14 to 15 degrees Celsius or 57 to 59 degrees Fahrenheit. But the water temperature was freezing and it was 600 meters from the mainland to the island. So swimming, I mean, I think all of our first thoughts is like, why don't they just went, you know, run to the water and try to swim back to the mainland? Well, A, it's 600 meters and B, good luck swimming in freezing water for that long. I mean, it's just not going to happen. A 15 year old boy told his friend that they had to jump into the water, and she told him it was too far to swim, but there was no other way for them to escape. Anders was shooting kids on the rocks, so they both jumped into the water. The boy told his friend that if he got shot, she had to keep swimming, and the only reason they survived was because Anders was busy killing other campers. One teen had been shot in the head and was lying on the ground. He knew that if he didn't keep moving, he would die. When he touched his head, he realized that he was touching his own brain. At first, people across the lake didn't think anything of the noises they heard coming from the island. Cause they're like, oh, maybe they are just having fun, firecrackers. But then they heard the screaming and they thought, oh, well maybe they're just playing pranks on each other. But a local man named Casper Log got a phone call about the attack and assumed it was a prank call. But he went out onto the water anyway and quickly realized it was real. And this guy, Casparu a hero, man. Caspar was a hero because he actually went and got his boat and made three trips, pulling dozens of teens from the ice cold water, some of them bleeding and barely able to swim. A German man named Marcel Gleffe was camping on the mainland. When he heard the shots and screaming, decided to check it out. He also took his large boat out onto the lake and started heading over to the island. Marcel took four or five trips out onto the water, pulling 30 kids to safety. Desperate to save as many as he could, he threw life jackets to the teens in the water that he couldn't fit in the boat. And he was later named the savior of Utoya. Another married couple that was actually there on vacation stayed on the shore pulling kids out of the water and even took smaller boats out to rescue more. Once the teens made it to the other side, those who were able helped pull their friends from the freezing cold water. About 150 kids were saved by swimming away from the island. So even though it's dangerous, it was still the best, I mean, it's your best chance at survival. And luckily there's heroes that started getting their boats out and risking their own lives in order to go and save these poor children from this monster just terrorizing the island. But once Anders saw that some of the campers had jumped into the lake, he started shooting randomly into the water. Caves on the west side of the island that could only be assessed through the water became a hiding place for many campers. 23 teens hid in a small opening off the rocky shore while one stood guard, pulling three more teens from the water who almost drowned. Adults from the Norwegian People's Aid hid 47 teens in a building called the Schoolhouse. Anders shot through the door twice but didn't break in. All while this is going on, the police on the mainland were just trying to reach the island on a motorized inflatable boat. But as soon as they started moving, the engine died. Eventually, they caught a ride with two civilians on their boat. And finally, they had a way to get to the island. And later on, they would be criticized for endangering the lives of those civilians. And being unprepared. Like, what the hell? You don't have a boat even? Like, you don't even have a working raft? Like, come on. Like, what are the chances that in this type of situation, the police are not prepared? They don't have, they don't even have the equipment that they need. Their helicopter's on leave. They don't have a backup. Like, man. And it's crazy they couldn't get another helicopter in a different county or different area, you know, something just to start heading that way immediately. That's that's just, I don't know, baffles me. Yeah, it really does. Because they should have been able to get to the island far sooner than they did. I mean, they were notified within a minute or so. They knew what was going on there. And yet they had to sit back and like, let this go down for over an hour. Like just makes no sense. At 6.01 PM, Anders made his first call to emergency services to surrender, but he hung up before saying anything and continued shooting campers. He called again at 626 just before encountering the police. And again, he hung up. After an hour and a half of shooting, the police finally reached the island at 625 PM. Police officers in full riot gear swarmed the island, and terrified campers begged for their lives when they saw them, assuming they were also fake police. That's what's so terrifying about this is that they all thought Anders was an actual police officer. So immediately they were like, Trust, like, you know, he's here to protect us and yet he was there for the very opposite. So I can only imagine when they saw a bunch more show up, they were probably like, oh my God. Yeah. Like yeah. this is horrible. Like what is about to happen to us? It didn't take long for the police officers to locate Anders on the island. I think he made it back to the Southern point. He had gone all the way around it once or twice. And at first they were just yelling at him like to surrender, but he didn't. And I think a lot of people assumed that he probably would have was going to die by law enforcement or even take his own life. I mean, in many cases of mass shooters, that's what they do is one or the other. But in this case, they got him to surrender. And at first he didn't want to, but he finally gave up. Unfortunately, because Anders had over an hour and a half of just shooting time and just walking around the island murdering people, he was able to kill 68 teens on the island and 57 were shot once or more in the head. 110 were injured and 55 were seriously injured. The 69th victim died two days later from gunshot wounds to the head and back, and 33 people who were shot luckily survived. But he had fired a minimum of 186 times and had loads of ammunition left. Anders also used hollow point bullets, which this type of ammunition expands or breaks apart on impact, doing far more damage than standard bullets. The chief surgeon who treated many of the wounded had never even seen bullets do this much damage to a body before. Meanwhile, rescue workers continued to search the lake for days looking for bodies. The teen who had touched his own brain after being shot in the head actually survived and still has bullet fragments in his skull. Monica's husband and daughter were also on the island and they luckily survived as well. The youngest victim though was only 14 years old and the last victim shot was 16 years old. And earlier that day, former Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland had visited the island, actually. Anders later said he'd hoped to kill her, but she was gone by the time he got there. After Anders' arrest, there was a lot of criticism towards the police. People questioned why they didn't try to get to the island in smaller boats instead of trying to wait for the ferry. Which I would I would have thought, too. I'd be like, what the hell, guys? Like, There was no way to get there any faster. You had to literally just stand on the shores listening to the horrors and the screams of our children being massacred. Like I would, I would be upset too, for sure. Yeah. There had to have been some type of boat or like even a canoe or something like get on something and make your way to the Island is better than just standing there. You know? Yeah. uh, It's just hard to believe. And I'm sure these victims families are still like, just don't understand why so many died when it didn't need to happen that way i mean there should have been a helicopter that could have got a swat team over there in no time like and at least stopped him much sooner it's just wild that he had an hour and a half of just killing time like that's it he had all that time the police also arrested an innocent 17 year old survivor who they believed was andrew's accomplice at one point So they got some criticism for that. This particular individual had a different haircut than his ID, which aroused suspicion. The police also received criticism for arresting an innocent 17-year-old survivor named Anzer Djokov, who they believed was Ander's accomplice. He had a different haircut than his ID, which I guess aroused suspicion for him. And as a small child, he lived through mass murders in Chechnya, and he didn't react to the shooting on the island the same way the other kids did. He wasn't screaming, crying, or hysterical. So they arrested Anzer, stripped him naked, and locked him up near Anders' cell. They kept Anzer in custody for 17 hours and interrogated him without a lawyer or guardian. Meanwhile, his family thought he had been killed in the shooting. It's crazy. Ultimately, the authorities charged Anders Breivik with terrorism for the bombing in Oslo and for the shooting on Utoya. And during interrogations, Anders admitted that he had carried out the attacks but denied any guilt. He explained that these deaths were atrocious but necessary. Anders was examined by a court-appointed forensic psychiatrist and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. The psychiatrist believed he was psychotic at the time of the attacks and criminally insane. He was examined again in April 2012 when a five-judge panel ruled that he was sane and fit to stand trial because the attacks were clearly premeditated. Anders had been planning for years. He actually wrote a manifesto, I think it was like 1500 pages called 2083, A European Declaration of Independence. Plagiarizing large sections from the Unabombers manifesto. Except he replaced the words leftists with cultural Marxists and the words black people with Muslims. Anders considered himself a conservative nationalist. He hated Muslims and believed It was his life purpose to stop them from immigrating to Europe. He talked about restoring the patriarchy and his admiration for the Tea Party movement in the United States. Anders mentioned Robert Spencer, who founded the group Stop Islamization of America and writes a blog called Jihad Watch. The manifesto showed that Anders was xenophobic, Islamophobic, anti immigrant, sexist, and a far right extremist who believed he would reignite the crusades against Muslims dating back to the middle ages. He literally said he was part of the Knights Templar or the leader of that group, which they looked for this group that he claimed he was a leader of. And there is all these other people a part of, and they never found any evidence of it. But he claimed that he had been contacted by a far right group called the English Defense League, and he was to start a chapter in Norway. But Anders dismissed them because they didn't believe in achieving their cause through violence and disavowed terrorist attacks. After finishing the manifesto, he ended up emailing it to over a thousand email addresses 90 minutes before the bomb went off in Oslo. And six hours before the first attack, Anders posted a video on YouTube. He was holding one of his guns and dressed in what looked like a scuba suit. And in the video, he explained that he wanted to rid his country of Muslims and repeated many of the same ideas from the manifesto. At one point the police even took Anders back to Atoya to retrace his steps from the day of the shooting. He was attached to a long cord and walked around the island for eight hours with about a dozen officers surrounding him. This is really wild cause I feel like this would never happen in the U S but they literally put a harness on him and like walked him around this island. I guess they had him literally take them through everything that he did and in great detail to the police. And according to the police, the entire time he's like proud of what he did. There's no regret, there's no remorse for the massacre he had just done. He even pleaded not guilty, insisting that the deaths were needed. And he actually told the court, I do not recognize this justice system. It's very clear to me that a lot of the things that Anders did was to try and spread his crazy ideas and his message and I mean he took a number of photos of himself in like a military uniform he like literally you know along with the manifesto they found all these pictures and they're the usually the pictures that you see when you google his name and he clearly knew that he wanted to be known for this attack and he wanted it to you know further his ideals and start this war but it didn't work At all. In the end, in June 2012, he was convicted of mass murder, terrorism, and causing a fatal explosion. And in Norway, he was given the maximum sentence, which is only 21 years behind bars. That's the maximum sentence they could give him. After serving this sentence, the case will be re-examined and extended five years at a time. So they'll, I guess, take another look at it. I mean, I can't imagine that they'll let this monster out. I really can't. If you live in Norway or this part of the world, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. If you think they will let him out of prison, hopefully they do not. Hopefully he stays in prison till the day he dies. But in Norway, prison is also very different from prison here in the US. This guy, he's kept in isolation, solitary confinement, but it is not solitary like it is here. This guy literally gets to play video games. Got a TV. He gets to go outside. He gets, I think he has, his cell has a window like to the outside. Oh my God. It's like a dorm. You gotta be fucking kidding he me. He literally gets to live in a dorm. And I mean, it. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm like criticizing the Norway's prison system or their criminal justice system. Cause I think there's a lot of good things about it. But in this particular case, and this is just my view on the death penalty, and I know it's a very controversial view on this, but in my opinion, if you are somebody that commits mass murder, you you do not deserve, like, you're done. Your yeah. life, it should be over, and there it should be ended very quickly, and just let's, you know, there's no rehabilitating somebody who commits mass murder like this, there's just not. And you took all these people's lives At the very least, your life should be taken. That's just my personal view. I definitely agree with that. And I know that Norway and the United States, like our justice systems sound like they're completely different, but here in the United States, there's people who are given the death penalty just for killing one person. So that's just what's the most frustrating thing about this is that 21 years, like that's not long at all. And yeah, should have been put to death immediately after what he's done. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that he essentially gets to just exist and live and have a decent quality of life. You know, like prison in the U.S. is very, very hard. It's very, you know, it's it's honestly inhumane in a lot of cases. And there's a lot of people in prison that I believe should not be in prison. But in cases like this, when we're talking about mass murderers, serial killers, people who take take a human life even even one i think the death penalty should be on the table it should be something that's considered and i know in a lot of parts of the world death penalty is completely banned it's not something that's even talked about but in this particular case i think it's very hard to feel okay that this guy's just after murdering all these children that he gets to just live out a decent life in prison I don't know. Curious to know what you guys' thoughts are. Again, these are just mine, but I personally think that he should receive the death penalty. It doesn't exist in Norway, so I guess the maximum sentence is all you can do. Yeah, he's basically getting a second chance at life after his sentence, and you know all the people that he's killed and the families that he's ruined don't get a second chance. No, they and, don't get anything. Yeah, so my thoughts go to the families of the victims, and yeah, that that's a harsh reality to have to accept that this killer walks free. Well, hopefully he never gets out. I mean, it's a possibility, I think, but I don't know, I could be wrong. He could, he could most likely be in prison for the rest of his life. But, I mean, at the end of the day, a total of 77 people were killed in Oslo and Utoya, and 319 people were injured. Anders Breivik was ultimately responsible for the deadliest attack in Norway since World War II. Oh, wow. This is like a huge deal. I mean, this is like, I feel like you gotta like send an example with this. And like, I don't know, you know, I know there's gonna be people that disagree with me, but it's just like in these cases of terrorists, like there's, I have no mercy for them. There's just no, you do something like that. You're done. That should be it. And there was actually a survey taken that 25% of Norwegians knew somebody personally affected by these terrorist attacks. And on July 25th, 2011, 200,000 people gathered in Oslo for a rose march to remember and honor the victims. And since the attack, Norwegians have mixed feelings about memorials. Many believe memorial sites are an appropriate way to honor the dead, but some who live through these attacks view them as a constant reminder of those who couldn't be saved. And I get that. I think that's a very valid feeling. Ultimately, I think for those that, Aren't directly involved, it's good to keep that in those people's minds as well. One man who had rescued campers from the water during the shooting is still haunted by that day, as he watched in horror as young teens were shot and killed. Out in his boat, he pulled survivors from the blood filled water, and he has never forgotten the image of a young boy who was fatally wounded that he had to leave behind. During those last men's trip to the island, he searched for survivors, but all the campers in the water were dead. He remembers the stillness of the lake and the deafening sound of the abandoned cell phones ringing. But to end this episode, I want to just give a moment of silence to the 77 individuals, many of them very young, who lost their lives on July 22nd, 2011. incredibly hard to even talk about these events because it is just so horrible. I mean, it's just so horrific. It's literally something out of my nightmares and all these poor people that went through this and the fact that Andrews is still alive, potentially playing video games in his cell, just like, I don't know, there's something about that that just rubs me the wrong way. But again, My condolences to all the victims' families. I can't even imagine what that must have been like to go through that. And anybody out there, you know, people that requested this episode actually were from Norway and, you know, wanted us to cover this because a lot of us here in the States don't even really know about this event. I think it's important that we recognize that this happened and remember those that were lost because things like this should never be forgotten, that's for sure. There shouldn't be anybody that doesn't know what this is this is extremely important to just the human history of earth and the fact that so many of us probably are like going to be like i've never even heard of this is is wrong in itself so that's why i cover these things that's that's the only reason why is to keep the victims memories alive and never forget these horrible things that happen cuz you know as much as we can focus on the good things in life we have to always recognize and remember the bad things So with that being said, I'll go ahead and end today's episode of the Lights Out podcast there. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you guys next week. Lights out. Every.